Hello and welcome to Conversations with Q. I'm Lucia, Q's Marketing Director, and every week I have a chat with a marketer or entrepreneur from the tech space to get to the bottom of a bunch of things that are probably fascinating you, inspiring you, or downright puzzling you right now. Think how to make decisions about your career, what it actually takes to build a successful startup, marketing tactics you should and shouldn't bother with, the dark side of hustle culture, equality in the tech industry, and more. I can't believe it's gone so quickly, but we've now come to the end of season two of Conversations with Q, and I'm really glad to be finishing off with a very fun conversation I recorded with Liam Martin, founder of time tracking app Time Doctor, and running remote, a conference for leaders of distributed teams in Bali this June, which Q is delighted to be a media partner for. This was one of those interviews where I had a whole list of questions prepared and I barely asked Liam any of them because we went off on so many interesting tangents, which is my favourite type of interview. Liam's story is fairly cinematic in that he nearly became an Olympic level figure skater before an injury sabotaged his career and he also has a background in sociology, so his insights on social media and remote working culture were absolutely fascinating. You're going to really enjoy this one, so let's get started. So Liam, I usually begin the podcast by asking guests what they wanted to be when they grew up, but from one of your talks at Running Remote, I found out that you harboured dreams to be a figure skater. So is that Mm -hmm. true, and what happened there? It was more than a dream, that was a reality. I was, uh, I would probably say top 25 in the world at one point. Wow, that's amazing. Which was, which was good. Um, but then I, I broke my kneecap yeah. at uh, the national championships, which oh, wow. actually it was even better. It was the last 20 seconds of oh the national championships. I was the guy that lifted the girls in pair yeah. skating. And um, the the doctors had said I wouldn't have smashed my kneecap broken my kneecap had I not been holding another 130 pounds mm-hmm. above my head. But that extra 130 pounds just gave it the extra pressure to completely shatter my kneecap. And I remember um, if you're if you've ever been in front of like 10,000 plus people, it's a very mm-hmm. awe-inspiring type of environment and situation. And you get into, you know how they always talk about the zone? Yeah. For, for sports. So I was, you get into that zone, quote unquote, and the zone, once you enter, once you get onto the ice and then when you get off, everything is muscle memory. Mm. So there's no, you don't understand what is happening until after the fact. So I had smashed my kneecap, completely shattered it Mm. and uh, got back up. Wow. and finished my routine because I was running off of muscle memory. Yeah, that's incredible. And it was and I was coming off the ice and I saw these EMTs at the end of the at, at the side of the ice and I thought to myself, what are they doing there? Well, <laughs> I was bleeding all off the uh... ice. Literally completely shattered it, got taken out back and basically uh, shot <laughs> in Canada if you're a if you complete, compete competitively, you can become a carded athlete, which means you get a small stipend per year to basically survive off of, and that was gone. And mm. uh, realized that grads, basically university, was the only avenue for me. Okay. Um, got in on a prayer, and I'm very happy that they took me on. 
Yeah, I mean, that sounds like someone should maybe make a movie about just did that part of your life, let alone everything that followed. Um, sure. So after you tried and failed, I guess, to become a figure skater, and that was well, kind of really un- yeah, unfortunate accident, um, I know that you then went into academia and you were studying and lecturing in sociology, but you also didn't have much luck there. And I know in this video that I just referred to, you said you received the worst student reviews in university history. So how do you think experiencing those two failures so early on has shaped your career and I guess you as a person? Preps me for entrepreneurship, particularly tech entrepreneurship. Yeah. I think that my my general rule of thumb with regards to business is make failure as quick and as cheap as humanly possible. So the more that you can fail, the faster that you can iterate towards success. And accepting failure and understanding what it is and realizing you don't want it obviously but realizing that it's just part of experimentation Mm. is probably something that has been i probably would say maybe the most useful kind of component to my personality as it applies to business Mm. Um, i don't get too personal about failing at things anymore and you see in society today, you know, everyone gets a participation trophy. No, you should fail. You should say, I worked, I tried my hardest. I absolutely tried my hardest. And someone came in and beat me. And that's something that people have to accept because if you don't, if you don't learn that lesson as much as possible, the world is a dark and brutish place and you need to understand that and accept it and it will give you the tools to succeed but if you don't understand it you will fail okay I think that's good advice and I guess it just gets easier to accept it and bounce back the more you fail presumably that's it exposure therapy it's the most classical form of psychology known to mankind you want to be able to fail as I said quickly and easily um Mm. and more importantly you can actually, it's almost like working at a muscle. I would probably say for anyone that hasn't experienced failure yet or really doesn't taste it in the same way, start with small failures and move your way up. Go to the gym, compete with somebody mm-hmm. else to try to lose weight or to gain muscle. We were talking about uh, Sujin, <clears throat> who I know that's been on the podcast yeah. with, uh, with you, and he's on this crazy weight loss campaign that he's been implementing and it's been amazing to be able to see him but a way to make that even better or more competitive at least for me is to compete with somebody else and then when you fail um, at least you've actually been pushed forward further than you would have been had you just been competing against yourself interesting yeah and I guess there's loads of different things that you could do that in like I don't know even if you're just trying to become a better cook or something and making mistakes you know it's all sorts of little things that you could apply to your everyday life absolutely i think that just it it's so important to fail at things yeah and to actually try that's the other thing is you know when we've got this participation trophy culture we don't actually try at things because we know that we'll get the We'll know, we know that we'll get the dopamine response regardless. Mm. And even just boiling it down even further to what I really call the distraction economy, which is like, 
there are companies that are spending trillions of dollars trying to distract you. Yeah. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, the new algorithm for YouTube, which everyone doesn't really truly understand. And I think they're now coming to terms with it. It's not about liking a video. It's not about commenting. It's not about sharing that video or getting backlinks to that video. It's watch time. The mm. only variable that YouTube looks at now is how long you watch that video and whether you're going to watch another video after you watch the current video. And so it's all about attention. And I kind of say it in a different way. It's about distraction. How can you yeah. distract me as much as humanly possible? How can I spend four hours on YouTube a day? And I think that that's kind of what we're at right now, which is this, this economy that's trying to keep us from achieving our goals. And they're kind of making failure more palatable, unfortunately, because we do get all of these little dopamine hits and and all this kind of stuff from social media and all the other distractions that we have in our lives, instead of really putting yourself through pain and mm -hmm. putting yourself through a challenging situation that you may or may not succeed at, but people don't understand that the process, that process of going through that pain is making you a better person. Whether you fail or succeed, that process of tension before you fail or succeed, that's what's making you a better person and you need to put yourself in those environments as much and humanly possible. We have really taken a right turn, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <In this> <laughs> no. It's fine. I mean, I, I love it. I really, it's great. It's something that I talk about all day long. Like yeah. it's just it's all about trying to get to become uncomfortable. If you yeah. can become uncomfortable with yourself, like even right now, you're listening to this podcast, you're probably pretty comfortable. You're sipping on you know, a, a coffee or something like that. You're, you're at the gym or you're on the, or you're in the car or something like that. How can you make your life a little bit more uncomfortable? How can you challenge it a little bit more to basically extend yourself and make yourself a better person, a better individual? Uh, not many people think about that. And I think it's so important. It, it really is the core of success when you yeah. look at it and just, no one talks about it that often. And, and it's really frustrating. Um, because we're in this environment, we're in this civilization that just sort of says, well, we're just going to hook you up to these dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin machines, and um, and everyone's going to feel really great about that. And then it's just, yeah. it's leading us down a really dark path. Yeah, like even, you know, sharing memes about how we're all spending so much time scrolling and making a joke of it, it just kind of encourages that procrastination and stuff. If you look at Facebook... And I've done, I mean, you guys obviously know this more than I do, but I find this so interesting. So they will hook people up to, um, they will hook individuals up to Facebook and they will measure all of their dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphin levels mm. while they interact with Facebook. Mm. And they gain beautiful insights into how to make people more addicted to Facebook. When you look at Facebook, it is online crack. Yeah. They, I mean, they have specifically okay. built it <laughs> to yeah. be online crack. And I think that that is a real big problem. Yeah. Um, there's other problems in society. I think like um, pornography in society is just too easy to access. And people, particularly men, are getting these 
these chemical hits from those types of uh, websites, which are completely destroying personal relationships. I think people are really focusing on social media way too much. Again, we're, we're talking about Q, which is kind of funny, but it still is. I think it's a, too much of anything is bad. And we need yeah. to really make sure that we're going through tension. Yeah, no, I think it's scary. And it's interesting that we've kind of gone off on this tangent, which I love, because um, I'm actually today, I've just been writing a blog post about um, social media and the kind of damaging effects, like, especially if you work in social media marketing, as I do, um, because I mean, obviously, Q is a social media company, but the tool is actually designed to reduce the time spent on social media, because it's automating your marketing activity. Right. So it's kind of something that I've just been exploring recently. So it's, it's interesting to get your perspective. And I just think, yeah, we have to recognize that it's a very powerful tool. Like you said, it's a drug and we're still sort of learning how to, it's such a new phenomenon. We're still learning how to manage that and control our relationship with it. There is a um, interesting study that I didn't read the study of, but I did read the synopsis, which is basically what everyone says when they yeah. read a study. <laughs> but I want to just basically state that uh, at the beginning. So... Um, it was a study on pornography, and they were trying to find a control group that didn't consume pornography. And they couldn't find that control group. Mm. They couldn't find a good N group to be able to say, here's the reference group that doesn't consume pornography. And I believe the, it was, I think they were millennials. They were, they were men in university. I think they were men and women in university. Anyways, mm. we are running a crazy experiment. I'm a sociologist by training. Yeah. And as an example, mm. Facebook, I mean, whenever you put up a post on Facebook, it will, it knows a group of people that will like your post no matter what. And what they'll actually do is they'll drip feed that to you over the next day and a half. Mm. So if you've ever noticed, you'll have maybe three people that will like your post on Facebook. And that will be great, and you'll get a little bit of a dopamine hit. But they realize that you get the same dopamine hit whether all 13 of those people that you know will like your video or your, your post on Facebook, that's one dopamine hit. But if they can cut that up into three sections, so three people like it at 9 a.m., yeah. three people like it at noon, three people like it at 3 p.m., you'll get three separate dopamine hits, and you'll be much more addicted to Facebook. Yeah. So they, they make all these changes to the algorithm and to the way that it interacts with the chemical makeup of your brain. And mm -hmm. if you've ever, um, for people that are, are very interested in trying this, what I would suggest that you do is go to a meditative retreat. You can usually find these types of organizations pretty much everywhere in the world where you can take like a seven or 14 day uh, retreat where you don't, some of them you don't speak, um, social media and technology is actually banned at all of these things and you can go down to zero and what will actually happen i believe it's over 14 days all your chemical levels will start to return to their previous levels mm. and then interact with just the world so go check out social media you'll get more excited because you've come back from your brain being just saturated with all of these chemicals that were constantly mm dropping into our brains every single day on social media. I actually think it's, and just the internet in general, I, I'm very much, I'm terrified 
yeah. to be honest with you, of the long-term sociological impacts of this type of um, information being put into our brains. However, there's no way that we can really control for it. I'm equally fascinated by it, and I think it's really interesting hearing a sociologist's perspective as well. Um, and actually, this kind of brings me on to my next question for you, which is because it's kind of to do with how we spend our time and manage our time, I guess. Um, but once you left academia, you set up a business called Time Doctor, which you still run to this day. So can mm-hmm. you talk us through how the idea of Time Doctor came about and what it does? I had been running an online tutoring company and I was tutoring uh, mostly first year and second year university students on their pre-med courses. Okay. So people will pay exorbitant amounts of money to be able to get a 4.0 average on uh, Bio 1-2, Chem 1-2, Math 1-2, English 1-2, because it is the courses that denote which medical school you get admitted to. Okay. And the problem that I was having is I was paying these really high-end grad school level tutors to be able to work with these students and I would build a student for let's say 10 hours the tutor would submit 10 hours and the student would say I didn't work with that tutor for 10 hours and I'd say okay well let me go talk to the tutor I'd talk to the tutor and say hey did you work with Jimmy for 10 hours and he'd say of course I did Mm. so what I ended up having to do is refund the student for the unworked time and uh, pay the tutor for the full 10 hours and I'd end up losing money on that deal and that was creating a real problem inside of the business these were remote tutors located throughout North America and Europe and it was creating a major issue for me because we couldn't very clearly identify exactly how long someone worked for us inside of a remote company and Time Doctor completely solved that problem for us so the tool basically measures how long someone worked for you in terms of time, but it's also able to very, very uh, egalitarianly, that isn't even a word, uh, (laughs) to basically define what work was done, how it was done, and more importantly, how efficiently it was done for the actual individual, the worker, and how they can improve their own personal productivity. So that really solved that problem for me, and it was kind of an itch. Uh, My co-founder, Rob, had a very early alpha of it and I said to myself this is something that I really want to get in on because it's something that um, I know would solve a very specific problem inside of my current business. Sure yeah it's really interesting actually because um, for this podcast I've been having a lot of conversations with startup founders about management and how to get the most out of employees and often that is in a remote company and some of the previous guests um, like Ross Simmons and Last week, we had an entrepreneur called Dan Murray Serter on. They were kind of talking about giving their employees complete freedom and flexibility over their hours and sort of building an outcome-focused business model rather than, like, tracking the amount of time their employees are spending on work, like, as long as they're delivering. That's all they care about. So since Time Doctor does things like track breaks and time spent chatting to people, and I think you even have GPS tracking as well, I'd love to hear what you make of that kind of management style. You know, what would you say to someone who might feel like Time Doctor is kind of breathing down employees' necks a bit? It it could be used in that context. And I think for a lot of the people that will say I'm KPI-based, 
they probably have companies of under 150 people. Yeah. Um, so there's a, again, a very interesting sociological phenomenon that occurs past one, the, the beginning points of it is around 100 people and the absolute outset is 150. And that is your tribe size. So going back to the beginning of human civilization, people can basically cannot understand or cannot have more than 150 friends mm-hmm. in their tribe. They're, we're hardwired to it. It's a, it's a medulla oblongata thing. It's literally, that's, that's all you've got. And once you're over 100 people, and we're approximately there right now, we've got 90 plus people, people stop becoming like Lucia and Jimmy and John, they start becoming customer support rep three. Yeah. And um, once they become customer support rep three, which is no fault of anyone, it's just a sociological fact, then what you need to do is you can't really follow those KPIs to the degree to which you could before, and you need to start measuring overall productivity and predictive components of that work. So as an example, we have a quit predictor inside of um, Time Doctor and Staff.com, which allows you to be able to predict with about a 90% accuracy rate, 89 point something, as to whether or not someone will quit their job six months before they do. And we can tell you very specifically why that person is going to quit. So are they going to quit because they don't like the manager? Are they going to quit because they're not being challenged in that particular position? Um, All of that data is available based off of that metadata and it's also particularly given to the employee. So when we're talking about KPIs, There's direct management that you can absolutely work on and it works to a degree, but when you're dealing with Fortune 500 and trying to take Fortune 500 remote, which is actually probably one of our biggest submissions inside of what we do as a company, Mm. you have to be able to have that type of management layer in there. Uh, We've had the number one question that we get with moving large teams remote is, well, how do I know what they're doing? Yeah, that is the absolute and for small tech companies, you got 10, 20, 30 people inside of your company. It's absolutely it it works Um, Mm. at 300 people. It does not work. And I can show you a whole bunch of data (laughs) to be able to back that up, unfortunately. But the reality is, is at large scale, um, the that is probably the number one concern for employers and for us we our mission statement as a company is that we want to empower people to work wherever they want whenever they want and if you have that type of mission and we're trying to get everyone on planet earth to have that option Mm -hmm. then you really have to look at well how is remote work structured and what are the major barriers towards remote work the number one barrier towards remote work right now for the enterprise space is what are they doing? That is that, you know, when we pull every single time, and that's why we basically started with that product because we recognized that was the biggest problem that Fortune 500 had and Fortune 1000 and who we really focus on as a demographic. Sure, yeah, that makes total sense. And um, yeah, it's a product that's kind of sees remote working as a scalable global thing. We kind of see our product as a Trojan horse of remote work. 
Okay. So the employer basically gets everything that they want. And when you look at the employer employee relationship, um, you are absolutely right. There's a social cost for deploying something that's going to measure how efficiently someone is working for the employee side, but the employer would probably want that data. Every employer on planet Earth would want that data if there's no social cost. It then just boils down to how much social cost am I willing to give up to be able to have that extra data and what are the improvements towards overall productivity. And so what our actual major marketing challenge is, is to be able to communicate to people, well, this is not about breathing down an employee's neck. This is about an employee trying to be as productive as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and we have a lot of data to back that up, it means working way less hours per week, as yeah. an example. Um, the average employer or employee in an office works a little under three hours per day of actual wow. on-computer <laughs> work when we think about thought workers. Yeah. So when we look at that data, we've actually recognized that someone can probably work maximum four to five hours of like work work per day before they're burnt out and they need to do something else. But yet we keep people from nine to five, which is stupid. Um, We should just have them focus on where's their maximum points of productivity. Let's try to wring out as much productivity as humanly possible, which obviously we have connected back to KPIs and then just implement that solution through the software layer that we currently have. Um, There is tension, obviously, always with that type of relationship. But as I said before, we're trying to kind of work that down and not be as scary as people think we are. No, and it's it's a long-term solution. So um, so that brings me on to your most recent project that you're working on now, um, Running Remote, which is the largest international conference for remote workers and for which Q is delighted to be a media partner. So can you explain why you started Running Remote and what the conference aims to do? We were at our team retreat about two years ago, and I was sitting with Igor, who is the co-organizer and GM of the conference, and we were trying to figure out how do we get to 200 employees. We really started to find, we started looking for information on this, and we couldn't find anything on the internet. It's a whole bunch of information on how to hire a virtual assistant, how to manage small teams of five to 10 people. But when you're talking about teams of 50, 100, 500,000 people, there's almost nothing. Yeah. There, there actually is nothing um, above 1,000. We actually we have a couple people that are managing 1,000 plus employee remote teams that are speaking at Running Remote, which I'm very excited about, but Mm. it was so hard to find this information. And then we said to ourselves, well, where's the playbook for doing this? And there was no playbook. So we said, well, why don't we just do this? Mm -hmm. I actually did go to a couple conferences on remote work, I suppose, by the definition at that point. And it was mostly what are called digital nomads. Yes. Right now, which is like a phenomenon of people that work from their computers and they really kind of take on the four hour work week philosophy where they just have passive businesses and they they travel the world and and that's a great way to work. Yeah. But it didn't speak to us, which is I worked 53 hours last week. I really like working. I find it very um, enjoyable. And I would like to be able to continue to scale 
this company remotely as far as humanly possible. So where's the playbook on how do you do HR? How do you build an online marketing team remotely? How do you build an online support team remotely? Customer success, development, all of these things, which no one has really put down as uh, there, there are no best practices yet. So we said, let's put together a conference to kind of build those best practices, which was running remote. So we literally dropped, it was a ready fire aim type of situation. Mm -hmm. So we just, I, I, we cut a check for a hundred grand said, okay, let's see if we can make it work. Uh, we lost 1800 bucks on the first one which wasn't that bad, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so we decided to do it again. Uh, and it's yeah. going to be, a, it's in Bali, like it was last year, which is probably if no one, if when you're listening right now, you have not been to Bali, it's probably one of the most beautiful places on planet earth. I, I would probably say it is the yeah. most beautiful place on planet earth. And, um, it's just going to be a fantastic experience of bringing these thought leaders of remote work all together to be able to build the future of remote work. Yeah, it looks amazing and I guess it there's a gap because this is such a kind of new um, movement and I, I agree with you, it kind of, it's digital nomads often get confused with remote workers, I think, um, and a lot of the like coverage about remote work in the media and, you know, it's often about these people who, yeah, like work a four hour day or week or whatever and are on a beach but actually remote working can just be working from home um, in a more sort of long-term sustainable way. I would say for every digital nomad you see, there are probably a hundred remote workers. Exactly, yeah. Behind that, but they get all of the attention yeah. because it's just, it's a lifestyle that yeah. is really exciting. You know, living on a beach, hanging out, doing whatever you want to do, working a little bit and, and making money. And, um, I am, I would probably say I'm kind of like half digital nomad. I spend about six months out of the year away from my home base, okay. but I spent the last two months in Mexico, in Playa del Carmen. Oh, amazing. I love which, Mexico. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Fantastic spot to visit and to work. And I was working out of a co-working space that was overlooking the beach, oh. but I maybe went to the beach twice out of those yeah. two months. I was working, you know, I was just because yeah. you don't, when you look at the reality of remote work, you have to work like anyone else. And the digital nomad stuff is, I don't know, I'm going to do a little bit more deeper dive on that in the future. I don't want to speak too directly about it now, but um, there's a lot of promises for kind of the digital nomad lifestyle. And I think that a lot of those promises don't actually pan out long term. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've written a blog post about this before, actually, where I interviewed several sort of seasoned digital nomads, and that's what they all said, is that it's, it is fun, there are lots of positives for a while, but it's not really sustainable, and there are a lot of downsides, like you're not really enjoying travelling, even though it looks like you might be having a great time on the outside, the reality is you're working, and there are so many stresses involved, so, yeah, it's interesting. I've been, um, I don't know if you've ever read The Subtle Art of Not Giving a, and I can't remember who can swear <laughs> in this podcast. It's by Mark Manson. Yeah. And you can go check it out. So his, his perspective is that social media is always showing you the positive aspects of people's lives. 
no one, no one, you know, shows a photo of like, hey, you know, 18 hour flight in economy, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. that's, not, that's not what people talk about, right? Yeah. They take the photo of like, hey, 18 hour flight in first class, here's my champagne. Yeah. And the, so the lifestyle that people have is that you see on social media is the 1%. It's that they're 1% happiest, you know, time of their lives. The other 99% is doing the dishes, taking out the trash, having a fight with their partner, um, you know, sleeping, like all of this stuff that just isn't too flashy and, when you look at digital nomads or for anyone else on social media, you need to recognize that they're just showing you the highlights. They're not showing you the lowlights. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, I think that's something to always bear in mind just outside of remote working and digital nomads as well. Um, but I watched the talk you gave at the last running remote conference. Um, I think it was a kind of introductory talk. And you spoke about how remote work is a movement, not just a business model. Um, and I guess this is the sociologist in you, but you touched on two points that I felt were really important, but not really discussed. So the first was that remote work is better for the environment because obviously it cuts down on things like carbon emissions from commuting. And the second is that remote work empowers people who don't have access to career opportunities locally. So kind of focusing more on the latter, do you think remote companies are making the most of their ability to hire from like a truly diverse global talent pool? I think they, yes, generally, I think they are. I think that because we see the, we see the leaders inside of remote work, which are companies that are generally tech companies that have exorbitant amounts of resources per employee. Mm -hmm. you, you don't necessarily see what I would say is like the real world, the real version of remote work. I have a, a presentation that I'm going to do for the next year of uh, of running remote, which is about Kazi, and um, Kazi lives in Bangladesh, and he was showing us his story about how he was living off of a dollar a day in mm. Dhaka. Which, for anyone that has not been to Dhaka, it's probably one of the worst places on planet Earth mm. uh, to live. Right? It is a it is the most third of the third world that you can think of. And Kazi started working online. He actually had a child during this entire process. And we've got some really cute photos of him and his baby while he's working 12 hour days mm -hmm. on his computer, working as a freelancer. And now Kazi is making 3000 us a month in wow. Dhaka. And that's the, that's the stuff that I really want to shine a light on with regards to remote work, because that's basically equalizing work opportunities for everyone on planet Earth. And for people like me and you, we have nothing to worry about. However, the people that have gotten jobs because of geographic opportunity, <clears throat> so just because you're in New York, no longer will mean that you're going to get the um, the computer design job <clears throat> because you can hire Kazi who might be better than you, way better than you, and also might be a lot more cost competitive. And I think that this flattening of the world is going to really 
explode over the next 18 to 24 months because we now have the infrastructure in place. So mm. three, four years ago, we didn't really have Slack or TransferWise or Time Doctor or Trello or Asana or Basecamp or Jira, all of these tools that we currently use to be able to help facilitate remote work. And now that that infrastructure is in place, along with high-speed internet, these opportunities are only going to just explode on an exponential basis. And that's what I'm very excited about, is seeing the future of the world where there's a lot more Kazis who are way more talented than probably a lot of the people that you're currently hiring right now, but you can't hire them because Kazi is in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and he's not in New York or London or Toronto. Yeah, that's a really cool story and I'm glad that you shared that because I think one of the reasons I asked that question was because I still feel like we're not really hearing those stories, but I guess that's just because we're still in the process of figuring out how to make remote work work. So that's really cool. Um, and in another of your videos, you were talking about what to look for in remote employees and again, you made some really good points. Um, I found the first one about psychometric tests particularly interesting. Um, so essentially, you said that remote work is better suited to introverts rather than extroverts, extroverts, or at least that's kind of how you hire in your company. Um, mm -hmm. And you kind of prefer hiring people that are content to work alone at home rather than those who need to go to coffee shops and co-working spaces. Um, now, I would definitely describe myself as an introvert, but I still can't really manage like working from home all day, every day. So I'm very lucky I have a co-working space members club literally opposite my flat, so that's very convenient. Um, but like, what do you make of that? And do you think working in coffee shops or co-working spaces is bad? I mean, you did mention that you worked in one. Absolutely not. No, I, I okay, work cool. out of coffee shops and co-working spaces. And um, have you ever been tested for like your levels of introversion versus extroversion? No, I haven't, but I really want to do it actually because I think um, I've, it's something I've realized from doing remote work actually is that like I've definitely always considered myself an introvert and I'm very, very happy to be on my own. I like working by myself with no distractions, but doing this has also made me realize that I do get a lot of energy off, um, well, not necessarily a lot of energy, but I think I need a certain amount of interaction with other mm -hmm. people, even if it's a very I, small level of interaction. Just from interacting with you over this last hour, I would say you're probably slightly on the extroverted scale, really? just, from, <laughs> just from me listening to you, but yeah. the testing could obviously show something different. It's the, <clears throat> generally extroversion and introversion can kind of boil down to one particular um, variable which is do you get energy being around people or does that suck out your energy does it do you lose energy from being around other people and i would probably say you might get energy from being around other people so you might be slightly on the extroverted scale yeah um, i don't know i think i should do a, a, do a test because i think for me there's like a limit so i do i can reach a point where if I've been around people, I just need to be on my own. But maybe that's just more of a human, a natural human thing. Yeah, I, I, I think you probably hit it on the head. There's, I mean, it's not a, it's not an if then. Yeah. It's, it's a scale. So, um, yes, absolutely. It's, it's something that you definitely need to look at. But 
introverts are, are great for remote work uh, just because they're very easy to manage. So mm-hmm. they're very happy staying at home, working with themselves. Uh, my, my girlfriend and partner of the last six years, she is a lot more on the introverted scale. So she is very happy to be able to work from home, and she does work from home. And I work at a small office that we have uh, that we've picked up here in Canada. And I just need that other form of interaction. And I also need a place to disconnect from my social and workspace, which is another big challenge for remote workers, at least personally for me. So I need to have a workspace and a social space, but. Regardless of that, um, that's one of the biggest insights that we've gained is just introversion versus extroversion. It's been a very clear signal that we've gotten from the data. Uh, We haven't gotten much past that point, which is actually a little bit frustrating. I thought I'd be able to come up with some really good psychometric um, identifiers, but the only one that's presented itself is introversion. And, And that's just as it applies to employee retention. So being able to retain that talent for an extended amount of time. So there might be other variables that are factors inside of remote work that may make you more productive. As an example, maybe extroverted remote workers are a lot more productive remotely, but we're just not measuring that variable. It was just mm-hmm. for extra, uh, it was just for retention. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm definitely going to go away and do a test now, I think. Um, Well, Liam, I could talk to you for probably ages on all of these things because I know that we're both kind of fascinated by them. But um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But finally, where can our listeners follow you on social media or anywhere online? You know, I'm really liking YouTube right now. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, so youtube.com slash running remote. And for anyone, I mean, we're talking about, this is a social media related podcast. So (laughs) I think that YouTube is probably one of the most underrepresented opportunities in social media right now. Yeah. Nowhere will someone listen to you for 15, 20 minutes, anywhere else on social media, Instagram, they look at a post, uh, Twitter, they read a tweet, Um, Facebook, they look at a photo or look at a post, but on YouTube, they watch a 10, 15 minute video about you. And I think that the level of interaction that you can have on YouTube is huge. The only, the biggest barrier to entry has been the cost of just running a YouTube channel because you need a videographer and you need, you need to optimize the posts and all that kind of stuff, the, the YouTube videos, but it's actually a relatively small barrier to overcome. And I think it's probably one of the best opportunity is right now for social media so i'm going all in on that for the next year and going to see where i pop out you can chat with me at youtube.com slash running remote if you leave a comment i will get back to you within 12 hours guaranteed our final episode of conversations with q season two and if you're listening before tickets for running remote have sold out you can get an exclusive 20 percent discount on passes using the code q at checkout we'll be back in the summer with a brand new season of fantastic guests but in the meantime we'd love to hear your feedback so please do rate review and subscribe to our podcast on itunes thank you for listening